Well, I wonder how you, um, how you usually start writing a letter. Uh, I know letter writing is not that common these days, is it? But an email, say, for example. I mean, usually it may be something like, Hi, Stephen, or Dear Samantha, I hope you're doing well. I'm, I'm in Cardiff at the moment. I'm working at such and such a place. I thought it'd be good just to get in touch with you, see how you're doing. Something like that, or something similar. You certainly would not begin the way that this letter that we're looking at this morning to the church in Pergamum begins. Did you notice that? To the angel of the church in Pergamum, and we think the angel is probably the minister or the leader, maybe, this is from the one who holds the two-edged sword. Wow. I think if, uh, if you had something like that in your opening, you'd quickly get the idea that this is not going to be something easy to listen to. There's something hard coming. It's a bit of a warning. Um, especially when you realize that the two-edged sword in the Bible refers to the Word of God, to His instructions, to His commands, to His corrections, and so on. There's going to be words spoken in this letter that will, will maybe cut our hearts or divide us or even hurt us, but obviously all for the benefit for our health spiritually and for the church as it's addressed. That's what we find as we read on. As we've looked at some of these uh, letters so far, when I've been here on a Sunday morning, um, you can see the map, I think it'll come up. You can see this is now the third church in this region of modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's number three, if it's coming up. It's number three at the top there. Uh, today in Turkey, it's known as Bergama, if you go there. And we've heard uh, the message to the church in Ephesus, which was a complacent church. They'd lost their first love. Last time we heard the message to the church in Smyrna, uh, Jesus commending them on their, comp their perseverance in persecution. That's the committed church. And now this morning we're going to hear Jesus speaking to this compromised church. Complacent, committed, compromised church in Pergamum or Pergamos sometimes as it's known. There it is, the top of the, the little semicircle there, number three in modern-day Turkey. Compromise. What's wrong with compromise? I mean, uh, in some situations, compromise is necessary, isn't it? Compromise is good. Well, yes, of course. Compromise is the art of politics, otherwise you'd never get anything done. Compromise is the secret of a successful marriage. I can certainly attest to that. It's true that uh, opposites often attract, as I think it is in our case. But then that means you have to work on the differences. And uh, that often means compromise. If you're an owl, like me, or at least I used to be when we first met, and was it 37, 38 years ago now? But anyway, I used to love to stay up. I did my best work studying late into the night and writing and stuff like that. And then I met and married Kathy, and she's, the, she's, she's not an owl, she's a lark, exact opposite. She likes to be in bed, if not asleep, by 10, and then she's up early, ridiculously early. Um, well, then there's got to be quite a bit of compromise on both sides, as we soon discovered in our marriage. Otherwise, we didn't see much of each other. <laughs> At least not when we were awake. So, um, compromise. It's good. It's necessary. But compromise in the church? 
Well, yes, even in the church on occasions, on secondary issues, things that don't really matter that much, it's good to be able to compromise, to come to some agreement. But compromise on the truth, compromise on the person of Jesus Christ, compromise on the gospel, well, no, that's a different matter altogether. And it's that level of compromise that Jesus is concerned for here in this church as he addresses them in this letter. You see, compromise on that level eventually leads to spiritual death and decay. Because it doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. That's the danger of compromise. It doesn't leap upon you. It creeps on you. And it slowly, you realize you're compromising and changing. And it saps your spiritual strength and your energy and your commitment. That's exactly what we see in this passage this morning. So, here's Pergamum. And this is a, a viable, functioning church. And the first words that Jesus speaks are words of compliment and of commendation. So let's just think of that first of all. A word of commendation. A word of commendation. Listen to what Jesus says. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. That's good. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. This is a real good word of commendation, isn't it? Jesus is not unaware of the difficulties they face as they seek to live for him in this city of Pergamum, this hostile place. That's the sort of, I suppose, in a lot of revelation, of course. It's in code language, but... Uh, Twice Jesus refers to this place as where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives and reigns. Why? Well, probably, we're not, we're not sure, but probably because Pergamum was built on a, a mountain top, and on the very top of the mountain, on the summit, on the Acropolis, there was a magnificent temple to Zeus, the chief of the pagan of the Greek gods. So there was Zeus claiming to be the, the great god, which is exactly, of course, what Satan, uh, the devil, claims in the place of God. This magnificent temple to Zeus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And then there was another very famous temple to Asclepios. Asclepios was known all over the then known world as the great and powerful god of healing in, the, in Pergamum. He was the most famous of all the healing gods. And this great central shrine was here in this city. His emblem was a snake, a snake on a pole. It's still used in some medical circles now. Comes from the Greek, from Esclepios. But this guy, he would let uh, harmless snakes just wander around in his temple. And the belief was that at night, the sufferers who came from all over the then known world would sleep on the floor in the temple and hope and pray that a passing, slithering snake would touch them. And if that happened, that was a great sign. That was a sign of healing, the touch of the god Esclepios. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, that wouldn't be something that I'd particularly look forward to, lying on the floor, going to sleep. But I suppose... If that's what you believed, if that's what your superstition believed, then you do it. They had a medical school there where superstitions and occult practices abounded, all kinds of things 
that were supposed to minister divine healing to the people who were sick. They were practiced there. Again, things that were wrong, things that were not God's ways, not good, clean, pure. So whether it was the worship of Zeus, we don't know, the worship of the emperor perhaps too, calling him Lord, or the practices of Asclepios, it doesn't really matter actually. All of this added up to a very hostile environment where Satan's throne held sway. Things in opposition to God's way, God's purity, God's goodness held sway. And Christians found it very difficult to remain true to Christ there, understandably. But they had. That's the point. They had remained true to him. And indeed, one faithful witness is singled out for special mention, Antipas. He'd remained true to the name of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and had been martyred in the city as a result. Jesus says, I know where you live. He knew about the difficulties of the situation. He knew that this city was the center of, well, of devilish satanic activity, really, in terms of the gospel. It was a place where Satan's throne is. And yet, in and through all that, this church was faithful. They'd held fast to Christ's name. They did not give in. They didn't declare that Caesar is Lord, but remained faithful to Jesus is Lord. And they didn't look to the pagan gods for salvation or for healing or for guidance or for other things in their lives. It was to Jesus Christ they looked because he alone is Lord. They'd come to trust in Jesus, even in the worst of times, even in the face of death, even when Antipas was martyred because of his faithfulness. They continued to uphold the name of Jesus and to be loyal and faithful to him. Jesus says, you hold fast to my name, and you did not renounce your faith in me. That's great. These are wonderful words of, of commendation. They're a great start, and they're a great challenge for us, aren't they, in our situations today. Jesus knows where we live. He knows the pressures upon us. It's a great start. But then comes a second word, and here's perhaps the two-edged sword. So secondly, a word of correction. A word of correction. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Wow, so here we go again. Here's a few obscure references, perhaps typical of the book of Revelation. What's going on here? Well, really we don't need to know all the details. This is a reference to the Old Testament and to Balaam and Balak and to their cursing of the children of Israel. But the point here, I suppose, is this is the subtlety of temptation and of compromise. Satan, Jesus says Satan is our, he, he's, he's the, the robber who comes in to destroy, to kill and to destroy. And so he tries to destroy all that is good. He wants to destroy our spiritual lives. He wants to destroy the church. And so having failed in direct attack on these Christians through persecution and like Antipas going to, to uh, be martyred, they'd stood firm in the face of persecution and, and suffering, but now the tactics change. Now he comes from inside their number. The church had st stood strong through persecution from outside, but now here was a new threat. 
here were so-called Christians who were beginning to teach, and this is the heart of it, that compromise with your culture was okay. It didn't really matter. Now, we're not quite sure how the nature of this compromise within the church showed itself, but these two descriptions, these references to Balaam and then the, these other guys, the Nicolaitans, they show that they were compromising on their beliefs and on their behavior. As I said, Balaam, in the Old Testament, he was paid to curse the people of God, and although three times he tried to, he just couldn't. So then instead of cursing them, he corrupted them. He got uh, women who were non-believers to get into relationships with them, the Moabites, to seduce the, the, the leaders of Israel. And so the, the leaders went back to idolatry, to following other gods, and to sexual immorality. The Nicolaitans, well, again, we don't know much about them, but uh, Irenaeus, one of the church fathers in the second century, wrote this about them. He said, the Nicolaitans, they live lives of unrestrained indulgence, abandoning themselves to pleasures like wild goats. Well, you can imagine what that means. So the church, it seems, this community of faith in Pergamon had people in the congregation now who were, well, they were probably still saying the right things, but they weren't living like Christians. They were living like the pagans. And the church was now tolerating this compromise. And it was corrupting the fellowship. It was... Uh, marring their witness as Christians. It was making them ineffective as witnesses to the world. So, of course, not, not, not everything in the culture is wrong, but whether culture cuts against or flows against the word of God and, and uh, the ways of the gospel, well, yes, then we have to stand. So, in other words, maybe there were those in the church who began to teach, well, you can be a Christian on a Sunday, but you can still participate in emperor worship because, um, well, you don't believe in the emperor re really anyway. And so you, you participate in emperor worship because that's how you show your patriotism. So it's okay. Or maybe you can go to church on a Sunday, but you can still join in in all the, the drinking and the feasting and the debauchery and, and all that goes on in the culture around you because it's, it's no big deal anyway to really worship these other gods because you don't believe in them, probably anyway. You still believe in Jesus. Or they began to teach about, you can go to church on a Sunday and you can be, you can be, you know, okay about your sexual standards, sexual immorality. It, it doesn't matter, really. I mean, what you do in your bedroom is between you and God. No one else. What you watch on the internet, it's your business, really. And besides, probably everybody else is doing it. So, you know, it's... We don't have to be too strict. We can compromise. That's what was happening perhaps in Pergamon in, in, in their terms. Some Christians were compromised in their faith. They were giving in to the prevailing culture and they were leading others astray, teaching others to do the same. So, the question we ask ourselves this morning is then how should we be living? Is your lifestyle, my lifestyle, is it shaped by culture or by Christ? Would people who watch your behavior and know your beliefs and what you hold dear, would they see a distinctive difference in the way that you live from the way of our contemporary culture?
As someone has said, if you were arrested and brought to court and accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence against you to convict you that you are a Christian? Christ or culture? Our culture says, oh, there are many ways to God. I mean, after all, uh, we live in this plural society. You can't be exclusive in your claims about Jesus Christ. Our culture says, oh, we must be flexible and, and tolerant in, in these matters of morality, especially sexual behavior these days. After all, it's, it's the 21st century, and everything's up for redefinition, isn't it? And the main thing, anyway, is to be true to yourself, even if that means ignoring the truth of Jesus, as revealed in the Bible. But Jesus is speaking, speaking to this church, speaking to us as individuals and as a church. The question is, whose voice do we follow? Culture or Christ? It's an important question to answer, isn't it? Individually and as a church, because to ignore the voice of the Lord of the church, the giver of life, that will incur his judgment. And so he says in verse 16, Repent, therefore. Repent. Otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them, the people who are saying these things and doing these things, with the sword of my mouth, this double-edged sword, this sword of truth. Repent. This word of correction. Now some people think of repentance as a very negative idea, uh, a heavy word. Maybe in, in some senses, in, in parts of the church, that's become what it's like, repentance. Oh, it's heavy, it's negative. But actually, in the Bible, in the New Testament, in Christianity, the exact opposite is true. To repent means to turn around, to do a U-turn, to turn from all this stuff that is leading to death. Repentance is a wonderful gift from God to open the door to life, true life, for us again. Without repentance, there's no change. And so we will continue in beliefs and behaviors that are ultimately destructive and deadly as we disobey God. Because living God's way is the life-affirming way. The wages of sin is death says the New Testament, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, ultimately salvation, knowing God, walking with Him, it's not about what we do for God in the first place, it's what about God has done for us in Jesus. And that's the great news, that's the gospel, because of that, no matter where we've gone wrong, no matter how much we've compromised, there's always a way back into friendship and relationship with God through repentance, to saying no to those ways and embracing again the way of life, God's way. Repentance is the key. What is repentance? Repentance is saying sorry. I'm sorry. I was wrong. When our children were growing up, um, we had five of them and so... We had a lot of repenting, to, well, we had repenting to do as parents too, but uh, they did as well. And sometimes Tom or Johnny or Beth, or, you know, they'd, they'd do something wrong. And they had to be 
disciplined in different ways. I won't go into how we did it, but uh, different strokes for different folks. But maybe they were sent out or they were stopped from a game or something like that until they said they were sorry. And then, of course, as soon as Tom came back and said, oh, I'm sorry, Dad, that was great. And we used to say to them, and I'd say to him, so, Tom, what does sorry mean? And he would know. <laughs> sorry means I'm going to try not to do it again, Dad. That's repentance. It's not just saying sorry and then carrying on, doing exactly, living just as we are. No, no. True repentance is, yeah, it's being sorry, but it means I want to turn away. I'm going to try not to do it again. And that's the key. That's wonderful news. Because as we do that, as we walk with Jesus Christ in the light, in friendship with him, as we stand firm, as we don't compromise, we discover that Jesus has finally wonderful words of encouragement. So thirdly, a word of comfort. A word of comfort after the word of correction. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay, here we go. This is a bit weird again, isn't it? This is revelations, hidden manna, white stones, new names. What's the comfort in this? Well, again, this is referenced probably in the first place to the Old Testament. Manna, as we know, was the food that God gave miraculously to his people every day in the wilderness. All through their wanderings, he provided everything they needed to survive in the harshest of conditions with this miraculous supply. So this is a promise that as we walk with Jesus, as we stand firm, as we trust in God and don't compromise, he'll provide for us. Even in the most difficult circumstances, his grace is sufficient for every need. Manna. And it was hidden, probably because it was put after the event in the Ark of the Covenant. And the significance of the white stone with a new name? Well, various suggestions. But looking at the scholars, there's agreement that it probably was referring to a practice from the world of athletics, the Greek Olympic Games. In the ancient world of athletics, the, the winners, the victors, were given a white stone, specially prepared and polished. And they were given a white stone as a symbol of their victory. But they were the winners, and often on their, that stone, their name, or maybe the name that they took for the race, that would be engraved upon it. It would be like receiving your medal, I suppose, today. But on that white stone is a new name, which no one knows but he who receives it. The victor would have his name engraved on the stone. And that stone and his engraving would be the, his access to all the celebrations and the honor that belonged to all those who triumphed in the games. And actually, if you read the Bible, it's interesting, oftentimes when somebody begins to follow Jesus, they get a new name. Cephas became Peter. Saul became Paul. And there's a sense in which what, what happens to each of us as we trust in Jesus, it's like a new name. It's, it's like a rebirth. It's like being born again, as Jesus says in John 3 to Nicodemus. It's it's a new start. It's a new life. You're a new person. You have a new name. Because not only did Jesus die and rise again to forgive us our sins and to bring us back into a relationship with God, 
but he's also given us his spirit to indwell us, to give us, to make us different, new people, empowering us. And what this means is that your identity is new. It's a new name as we repent and come back and trust in Christ. You're no longer defined by what you've done or what's been done to you. You're defined by what Jesus has done for you and who you are now as you trust in Christ. You're clean, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're made new. It's a new start, a new name. The old is gone, a new nature comes in. Through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit empowers you and Jesus himself feeds you through his word as he sustains you. So that not only do we hear his voice saying, remain true to my name, but he gives us the desire and the strength to actually do it. The story goes of another famous Greek, uh, Alexander the Great, perhaps one of the greatest leaders of, of the Greek Empire, expanded the Greek Empire all the way to India in the east. Um, great in terms of his leadership, bravery, his soldiering and so on. The story goes that one day he was inspecting his troops and a runaway soldier was brought to him, put in front of him. And uh, Alexander was so amazed that someone could run away, could desert his army, Alexander the Great, the victorious armies of Alexander. He couldn't believe it. He said to him, soldier, why, what is your name? Why do you do this? And the soldier said, my name is Alexander. The story goes that Alexander the Great said to him, oh soldier, change your name or change your ways. Change your name. Don't be called after me and then run away. Betray me. Remain true to my name, says Jesus. Maybe we need to change our name. Well, hopefully not. We need to change our ways to walk with him. Writing in a magazine in 2015, Billy Graham, perhaps one of the, well, one of the leaders of the recent years, isn't it, who's remained true to the name of Jesus. He says this about the secret of remaining true to Christ's name. He says this, stay close to Calvary. Wake up every day to the wondrous cross. Those who permanently stay at its foot will know the daily companionship of Jesus who meets us at every act of surrender and repentance. For repentance is a way of life. It's the way to life. And the companionship of Jesus will guard us from compromise with sin. Remain true to my name and enjoy the life that Jesus has promised to give us. He said, I've come to give you life and life in all its fullness as we repent and trust in him and know the empowering of his Holy Spirit.